Welcome to the Housing Matters Podcast, brought to you by the California Association of Realtors and the Center for California Real Estate. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another Housing Matters Podcast. Your favorite data nerds are back with everything you need to know about the housing market and the economy. My name is Jordan Levine, back from vacation and the chief economist here at the California Association of Realtors. And I'm joined by the real brains of the operation, Oscar Way, our deputy chief economist. Hey, Oscar. Hey, everyone. How's everyone doing? I know we've been uh, out for, haven't been uh, put one up for two, three weeks, uh, but we're back. We are back and I took a much needed vacation. I think that's like the first long vacation I've taken like that since even before I started working at CAR uh, almost six years ago. But uh, a lot has happened in in the interim. And so it's exciting to be able to be here to catch you back up because we're going to talk both about the uh, March press release that went out while I was away and talk about the ongoing growth in both sales and prices. We're going to look at some structural issues this time because I noticed that while I was out, folks have started to ask uh, whether we're in a bubble again. You're starting to hear that B word get floated (laughs) around. So I wanted to share some analysis that I dug into when I got back just to, to kind of reassure myself that I wasn't missing something important. And then uh, Oscar did a phenomenal analysis for our recent business meetings, which just closed out, looking at some of the relevant uh, proposals in the the president's new infrastructure bill, which also comes obviously with some uh, changes to the overall tax environment. So I think it's going to be a really fun episode with some really meaningful information. But let's start with just the basics, because you guys crunched the numbers while I was gone. And it looks like uh, the, the housing market itself in March continued to do pretty well. Yeah, and you said it right, you know, a lot of things happened, you know, in the last three weeks, four weeks or so, um, and the market uh, has been uh, continued to stay very, very hot, and that's one of the reasons why people started wondering whether home prices had actually gone up quite a bit, Right. Uh, whether we are in the uh, B-word cat, uh, uh, arena. Maybe but it's going talk- too well, right? <laughs> right, I mean, you know, from, from, and it's not only at the state level, it's also at the national uh, right. level as well. So let's take a quick look. You know, there are reasons for why we are seeing, you know, a significant increase in demand. Well, of course, compared to last year, but also, you know, some uh, home prices remain at an elevated level. Right. So let's take a quick look at some of those numbers first. I'll throw those those numbers out and we can, you know, uh, have a meaningful discussion uh, from that point on. So let's start with, you know, home sales. Of course, that's always uh, something that people pay attention to. And um, March, remember what happened last March, right? That's when we had the shutdown, right? Yep. So it's not a surprise to see that uh, on a year-over-year basis, we continue to grow at a very, very strong level. In fact, it's up uh, close to 20% compared to 12 months ago. Yep. And uh, sales level, it's still at 446,000. And I know, you know, I said still, that is because when compared to the last couple months, that may not seem to be as strong, but it's still a very good level. Right. So yeah, on a on a year-to-year basis, the the thing to keep in mind is that we're now entering that point of the year where things started to really uh, initially fall off with the onset. And so that does tend to pump up those those year-to-year declines. And we're still running at about a 450,000 unit pace, but I'm glad you brought that up because it is the <laughs> third month in a row where we've seen that pace 
you know, fall in terms of the overall level of home sales, right? We're still growing on an annual basis. But if you go back to where we were at the end of 2020, we were at the highest level of home sales that we had seen in 15 years. We were at almost 510 thousand units. And even in February, we were over 460,000. And so even as, um, you know, things continue to outperform 2020 levels, we we aren't able to kind of maintain those all time high levels that we had enjoyed for for so long, really through, you know, the the whole second half of 2020, really. Yeah. And I mean, we kind of knew, I think we have, we have been seeing it and we have mentioned it before that, yeah, it's going to slow down a little bit in terms of the level of sales. Uh, and we also have uh, mentioned, I think probably in the last podcast that yes, we are, we do expect that we are going to see some really strong year over year growth in let's say April or May right. or so. Um, so I'm glad that you reiterate, reiterated that yeah. Um, and it's pretty much across the board. If you look at, you know, different counties, you know, yeah. we're looking at 45 county, 44 counties out of 51 counties that experience increase on a year over year basis. But also we continue to experience some issues on the more affordable end. I know the high end continue to increase by triple digits for a certain price category, but the Low end continue to um, you know tighten up in terms of supply, and that actually affects sales a little bit. Yeah, definitely, and you see that all the way all the way across the board. And I think that's that's the important point, right? Is when you think about why we're not able to maintain that five hundred and ten thousand unit pace, or you know, even if you look at our forecast, we're still optimistic. We're calling for mm-hmm. a double digit growth in in closed sales this year, but we're not going to be able to maintain that twenty percent year-to-year increase. And for me, I think that comes down to the the supply issue, right? And, and you can yeah. see that in our unsold inventory index, which is still depressed, right? And you can see it just in the number of homes that are available for sale. And so, you know, which I think they've been falling by more than 50% for the last few months. And I know, yeah. That, you know, so that's for me the bigger issue because we we do think the economy is going to get better. When you look at the COVID numbers, when you look at the unemployment numbers, when you look at consumer confidence, you know, all the big major economic indicators are going to get better. Um, but but the reason why we can't keep up at, at 510,000 home sales every month is because you can't put buyers, I think, into homes that aren't for sale. And that too, um, just, you know, just like the sales growth, um, the the decline in listings is also broad based across almost every part of the state. You're absolutely right. You know, and and just listening to, you know, how you talk and how we actually, you know, have this conversation, I think we're very, we're getting very used to having 20% sales growth. So whenever it's actually below, we're, com- we're complaining. Right. Um, exactly. But it's, it's, it's very true. Supply is really the reason uh, that's tightened up um, not only the, on the demand, supply side, but also the demand side. Right. Uh, and it's across the board, as you said, 49 out of 51 counties actually experience a year over year decline. Only two, two counties, and uh, they are San Francisco and Sonoma. San Francisco is not, um, you know, a, uh, it's not a strange a stranger to, you know, increase in uh, supply because we have seen, you know, San Francisco have done some uh, <laughs> unusual stuff, uh, but maybe it's yes. not unusual for people who live in San Francisco. Uh, we're just looking at it from the data. From the outside. Yeah. yeah, but active listings continue to stay at a very low level. 
Now we have been talking about uh, active listings uh, overall. That's total active, right? right That's how many right. are actually out there for sale. But there's kind of a a stock and a flow component, right? Because the right. actives is like the snapshot of how many is for sale, and we go on. We can also look at how many are being added onto the MLS every month. And, and that's something that you did as well, right? Yeah, it's, you know, we looked at new listings, the, the uh, listings that's being added on a monthly or weekly basis. And we realized it's really not that much. It's only 2% compared, 2% increase compared to, you know, uh, last year. Right. Now you have to take it with a, a grain of salt too. Now 2% is not a bad thing, right? But keep in mind what happened last year. Right. During this time of last year, we actually had a shutdown. So it's it's actually at a very low level. So a 2% increase from last year is really nothing. Right. And and I think that that is, is kind of how you end up with the number of actives. You know, I got asked about that in an outreach the other day is, why are you focused on actives? It really, you know, it's the number of new listings that really that really matter. But if you think about it, the total actives are really the, the kind of... Um, the result of both what's being sold right. out there and what's being added to the MLS. And if you kind of interpret that, that kind of modest, very modest of 2% increase in the number of new listings, that means we're adding, you know, roughly 2% more homes onto the MLS in March than we added back in March of last year. But keep in mind, we sold 20% more homes than we sold right. in March. And so when we when we don't see an increase in the number of homes that we add and we sell even more, that's how you end up with these active inventory numbers that are falling uh, so much. And that's how we end up with the UII that falls so much as well. That's also a ratio, right? And so when sales right. go up a lot and listings don't change much at all, then we fall even farther behind the eight ball uh, in terms exactly. of, of overall active supply. And of course, um, it doesn't just end with having a tight market, right? And this is probably why we we belabor this point so much. It isn't just because <laughs> we, you know, care about it from the standpoint of our members, although that's, you know, obviously we, you know, our members do better when more folks are able to buy and sell uh, and own their own home. But, but what it means is that it actually threatens the ability for more folks to be able to uh, achieve that, that American dream. And I think that the the consequence of this tight supply is showing up for us when we look at the pricing data. Yeah, it put a lot of upward pressure on home prices, especially, you know, areas or um, price segments that have very, very tight inventory. Right. And so, you know, there's no question, no doubt in mind that, yes, you know, we are going into the spring home buying season and we are going to see home prices increase. That's typically what happens, yeah. but not at the level that we have been seeing in the past couple months. Um, and, you know, in, in March, in fact, even before going into the actual home buying season, spring home buying season, we already set a new record high. Yeah. And that record high was actually um, compared to February's number actually is a, <laughs> right. a significant jump. Yeah, and we're we're seeing back to back uh, record highs. Like every month is a new record high this year, and we're at almost seven hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and that's a median price, right? So keep in mind that that is uh, the point at which half the homes sold above and half the homes sold above. That means that you know fifty percent of the homes that we sold in California last month uh -huh. sold for more than seven hundred and sixty thousand, which is just uh, pretty pretty incredible. It's also incredible just from a growth standpoint because the 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 unfortunately the growth is far outstripping anything that we're seeing in terms of income growth right 
Absolutely. I mean, I I would love to see what 29% income growth from last year. Right. But you know, reality is we're not seeing that. I mean, granted, you know, we've talked about this before. Part of it is because of more high-end home being sold. Yep. So when you look at the state median home price, of course, you know, we're seeing you know, uh, higher end uh, properties being sold also in, by location as well. I mean, you're yep. seeing probably more homes being sold in the Bay Area. But still, I mean, there are quite a bit of um, uh, increase in price uh, mm -hmm. built in there. And it's pretty much, you know, when you look at across the board, we're seeing all 51 counties reported game, gains and uh, price on a year over year basis. Yeah, which is 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 pretty incredible, and a lot of records too out there, right? So Orange County finally joined the the million dollar housing <laughs> market club. It's the first Southern California county to to join its Bay Area wow. compatriots <laughs> with um, typical home prices that now exceed one million dollars. San Mateo actually has almost two million dollar uh, median prices, and you brought up the mix of sales does matter, right? When we look at median prices, both you know, a bunch of $2 million homes selling, a bunch of Bay Area homes selling does tend to skew the the growth towards, you know, that $700,000, $760,000 median price point. But even when you look at price per square foot, right. uh, and even when you look within county, right? So yeah, if you sell, you know, less homes in Bakersfield and more in San Francisco, it drags up that median price. But if you look within San Francisco itself, within Bakersfield itself, it tends to, you know, at least ferret out that geographic uh -huh. distortion. And then when you look at it on a per square foot basis, you tend to, you know, at least control for some of that mix of sales, even within county. And even there, I think all but four or five counties in California had not just growth, but double digit growth in per square foot uh, median home prices. And so, you know, uh, if you, if you own a home and have your foot on the property ladder, it seems like you, you are getting some real honest to goodness increase in, in value there. And, you know, there's also just something to be said for how competitive the market is, right. That it's not just the mix of sales because days on market and sales to list price set records last month. Yeah. Days on market was eight days. I remember, um, which, is the record as far as, 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 I mean, we have been tracking days on market going back to 1990. Right. And I don't think we have ever seen anything like this eight days. That's really, really low. And that's um, to go from hitting the MLS to going pending in just one day over a week is, is pretty, exactly. and that, again, that's a median, right? So that means half of what closed last month went pending in less than eight days. Absolutely. And, and of course, I think in, in the Bay Area, I reiterate, I, I might have said that before in a Bay Area, things could be gone like in a couple hours, but, right. you know, eight days for the state, you know, that's unheard of. And it's not only that indicator, you know, when you look at how many people actually made, you know, multiple offers, how many people were actually uh, bid up the price, just the, uh, the sales to list price ratio, for example, we set a new record. But if you just look at, you know, the number of homes being sold above asking price, two thirds of them were above asking price. And that's the highest, at least in the last 13 years. And, you know, we, we don't, we haven't seen that before. Right. And I think that's the perfect segue into, you know, the, the question of whether we are in a, in a housing bubble or not. Right. Because it seems yeah. like with, you know, 65 plus percent of buyers paying more than even what the seller's asking for um, it, it kind of naturally leads to the, 
the question of whether we are in a housing bubble, whether this is 2006 all over again. And I think if you just nakedly look at the median home price in nominal terms, which again is an excess of, of $750,000 right now, and you compare it to you know, where it was in the late 80s when it cost less than $200,000 to buy the median home price, those are the types of things that, that kind of lead folks to wonder whether it is 2006 all over again. And yet, you know, I, I kind of dug into the, the data when I got back because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, what you have to keep in mind is that over that same time period, that three to four decade time period where we've seen this incredible growth in home prices, what we've also seen is an incredible decline on, you know, in general, uh, and there's been recessions and things here and there, but the trend line is clearly down for interest rates. And we used to have in the 80s, an environment where we were in the double digits consistently, 10%, 12%, even higher for 30 year fixed rate mortgages. And, and when rates come down to the two and a half, three 3% range that we've seen over the last couple of years, what that does is it, you know, creates a huge increase in the amount of purchasing power, right? Because as a buyer, Absolutely. you can now crank up the amount of money that you pay for that home without screwing up all those kind of debt to income ratios and things that the mortgage bankers care about when they are determining whether you can pay back that mortgage uh, or not. And so when you, when you factor in what's going on with rates, the fact that we've had a tremendous amount of inflation over the last couple of decades, that have just increased the cost of all goods and services, right? Haircuts, cars, uh, yes, homes and everything else, wages, everything in, in between. And when you bake that in, uh, in addition to the interest rates, and then you also factor in what's happened with both nominal and real incomes in California, what you see is that uh, that explains most of the increase in prices. Folks make more, they have lower rates, uh, and, and that means that they can afford to pay more for mm -hmm. those homes. And, and if you think about it, just from the kind of standpoint of California's housing market, we're hugely inventory constrained and have been for a very long time. And so what does that mean? That means that buyers need to uh, be as competitive as possible, which means that those, um, you know, windfalls that you get from having more income and lower interest rates tend to just get passed on to uh, the home price because you need to go in with your best foot forward because there's not enough housing here uh, to, to go around. And so again, I think that it's, it's you know, only really elevated at at kind of face value. In fact, if you look at that inflation adjusted mortgage payment uh, and you compare it to where incomes are, you know, I think the the in 2020, like inflation adjusted terms, the median house costs $3,200 a month. That's your principal, your interest, your taxes, insurance uh -huh. and all that. That's actually 33% below where it was in inflation-adjusted terms really? back in 2006. So, um, you know, we're, we're nowhere near where we were at the height of that last housing bubble in terms of being overly inflated. In fact, that $3,200 a month in real terms is actually lower than that monthly mortgage payment was even back at the end of the 80s. So, yes, California is not as affordable as other states, but we're not um, abnormally unaffordable relative to where we've been throughout the last four decades. And I think, you know, if I remember correctly, in 2004, 2005, and 2006, uh, interest rate at that time was right around 
six percent, six and a half percent, and and of course, uh, you know, at that time we considered that low. Um, people would probably be wondering, you know, how low it could go, but of course, they don't have a crystal ball. They, they wouldn't necessarily know that it would go down to three and uh, to two and a half percent, right? Two point six percent. So I completely understand, you know, why, you know, the uh, the drop in interest rate would definitely lower the um, the the cost of uh, housing payment. Right. In the last two, three years. Yeah. And I think, you know, the composition of that 3200 and change mortgage payment uh, is a lot different now, right? Why it's 3200 bucks a month now is different than it, why it was 3200 bucks in real terms in the 80s. Back then, we had really low prices and really high interest rates that, mm-hmm. you know, led to basically the same uh, bite out of your paycheck in real terms that you have today. Today, we have really high prices and really low rates that ultimately lead to that same basic level of of affordability or unaffordability um, that that we've pretty much always had. In fact, if you look at that monthly mortgage payment uh, and you compare it to median household incomes in California, I think 43% of income is consumed by that monthly mortgage payment. And our 40 year long run average is 41%. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not particularly abnormal. And just for frame of reference in 2006, I think it was like 76%. So, um, you know, it's... Uh, they're high in nominal terms, but it's mostly because people are making more and they don't have to pay as much for that debt anymore. Got it. Got it. so, but we all, we, but we do expect you know a little bit of a slowdown also, right? I mean, you know, we are setting new record high, um, right. and we're going into you know the home buying season, uh, but we do see that you know as things get normalized a little bit, we will continue to see some growth as we put it in our forecast. Right. Uh, but I think in the second half of the year, with interest rate rising a little bit. Uh, expected to rise a little bit, and um, you know the mix of sales change uh, normalizing a little bit. Uh, we are expecting a little bit more um, softening, uh, right? In, in so prices. Exactly. And that's a great point because just because we don't see that prices are, uh, you know, hugely overheated in the context of what people make and what folks have to pay for that mortgage debt, it doesn't mean that 25% home price growth can continue on uh, (laughs) indefinitely, right? And we've already seen that actually, even if you go back and look at our fourth quarter housing affordability index, even when rates were low, right, down at uh, 2.6% and things like that, housing affordability actually declined in the fourth quarter of 2020. And that was before rates were going up. And so, you know, unfortunately, this tight supply pushing up prices, it doesn't mean that we're on the precipice of a major collapse in home prices. Um, But, you know, with with folks being priced out now of the market, especially as those interest rates rise, that's going to take a bite out of the demand side. And, and, you know, I'm still a firm believer in in the idea that supply and demand still works. And so eventually mm-hmm. once uh, we don't have to worry about getting sick, I do think that these <laughs> high prices and fast time on market and price premiums will lure some sellers back into the market. And just by virtue of having more supply, that should also help to cool off uh, home home price growth as well. And I, I hope you know, you're know you right in terms of getting more supply. And I think a lot of realtors, a lot of our members do want to see more supply, you know, with the type of supply level that we have right now, it's really, really tough. Now, there are other factors that could affect, you know, uh, supply and demand as well. And, you know, here's a a third segment that we want to talk about is, you know, some of the latest tax proposal um, uh, put out by the Biden administration just uh, last week. 
exactly. I mean, and, and, and they, they have a big infrastructure plan and, and they decided that they weren't just going to run it up on, on the government credit card. And so they were going to try and find ways to pay for at least some of this stuff. And a couple of those will have implications for us one way or another here in, in the real estate industry. And, and Oscar did some great analysis that, that I think is, is really illuminating, but if you could, Oscar, talk a little bit about the, the proposals for the 1031 exchange, because I know that for our members that work with, uh, you know, investors or that are uh, real estate investors themselves, they rely pretty heavily on on those kinds of current provisions in the tax code. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, there are a few proposals that's being uh, put out, and 1031 is one of them. Just a uh, you know, few, very few word what 1031 is. 1031 is the like kind exchanges that allows uh, investors, real estate investors, to sort of defer the taxation when they exchange real property. So, you know, when I sell a property, if I have a property as an investment property, when I sell it, uh, there's capital gain involved sometime. And if I want to defer that gain, I could buy another property uh, with uh, uh, equal value and then, you know, move, you know, use that as the next up. So 1031 allows people to do that, allows investors to do that. But the uh, Biden kind of uh, let it ride as it were right. and move on to your next uh, on your next investment. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and of course, uh, you know, one of the tax proposal that Biden put out was, well, we need to put a cap on it because, well, remember um, some of the um, American family plan, American rescue plan that does involve a lot of um, taxation, a lot of tax to be collected right. so that they can fund those prop those uh, propositions. In order to do that, they have to actually do uh, some taxations on some of these um, proposals. 1031 like kind exchanges is one that they actually put a cap on. In fact, now there was no cap before, but the new proposals suggest that you know they should put a 500,000 cap on the capital gain. Which you know it does have an effect on uh, on on um, on sales demand and uh, supply. So how so? Let me. I did some analysis as you said. You know on what the impact is if someone actually if we actually have a cap on five hundred thousand. Now first let's take a look at you know uh, how many properties actually have a five hundred thousand cap gain. Right. Now other places maybe not a lot. You know in California that actually could amount to quite a bit. Most you know, states don't have median prices that are in excess of 500,000, so it makes it tough. <laughs> exactly. And, and we have people, we've done some research, we know that people actually keep their property a little longer than before now. So it actually generates quite a bit of capital gain. In fact, about, you know, about, um, let me see, 20, about 30, close to 30% of the wow. uh, properties actually have a capital gain of 500,000, you know, of all the sales that we have, that we have seen. Yeah. Uh, in in past year, that's that's a lot, you know, because people keep their property for six or seven or eight or nine, ten years. So that's quite a bit of properties, but not all of them are being used as you know, uh, you know, ten thirty one exchange. So we're looking at about you know eight percent, nine percent of the properties. That's right. still not a, a, a that's still not a small amount of number of properties. We're looking at what thirty to forty thousand sales every year that could be exp that could be affected by that ten thirty one, you know, phase out or ten thirty one cap. Right. That's not a small amount, um, and in certain areas, it probably is a little bit bigger. For example, right. Bay Area, Bay Area could amount to more than double digit. So that definitely have an impact on demand. What about the supply side? 
Well, know, that's what I was just going to ask, you know, because if you if you uh, are now going to face a tax consequence by moving out of one investment into another, um, does that then provide an incentive to just hold on to investments then, right? And not uh, not have as dynamic of a portfolio, I guess, where you're just going to have more of a kind of set it and forget it approach to uh, <laughs> residential real estate investing. Yeah, and 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 you know, of course, yeah. Until the tax proposal actually turned into an actual tax law, we may not actually see the uh, impact. We may not see the effect. But we did some surveys before. We noticed that people are generally um, investors and also you know sellers. Right. Um, they they when it comes to capital gain, uh, they have to think twice before selling. In fact, about a quarter of them think about you know have to uh, delay selling their properties. Uh, because of ta- capital gain tax. Absolutely. So if you actually eliminate or put a cap on 1031, it does have an effect on people putting their house up on the, on the market, which could lead to maybe uh, 10% a decline in supply or so just because of 1031 exchange. Um, the actual yeah. uh, number, of course, we have to crunch and see you know, how it turned out to be, but it doesn't, that definitely has an impact on the supply and the demand side. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, which kind of leads to the next kind of set of provisions because they're going to jack the top tax rate back up to where it was uh, before the last administration passed their tax reform and lowered uh, individual and corporate tax rates back down. Uh, and and then also what they're going to do is they're going to make uh, the capital gains tax rate for folks that are making over a million dollars a year uh, actually be that top tax bracket, right? So it's not going to be the kind of 15 or 20% corporate tax or capital gains tax rate that, that folks currently have to pay. If you make more than a million dollars a year, you're going to have to pay that, that kind of top tax rate. So you're going to have both more of your kind of um, earnings exposed because there's going to be a cap on how much you you can kind of shelter from capital gains by using a 1031. But then also, th- you know, theoretically, at least some of those folks are going to then have to, uh, you know, pay a higher tax rate on that stuff as well, right? Yeah, essentially, you know, they you know, push it up from roughly about 20%. They essentially double it you know, from 20 to about 40%, 30.9.6%, not including that surtax of, if you include that surtax, it's over 40, 40%. I think it's 43.4%, something like that. And again, it goes back to, you know, where you're at. Now in California, you tend to have a higher, much higher capital gain compared to some other state. And again, we looked at, you know, how many people actually have, a, if, if we look at that, um, capital gain tax on uh, on the tax increase on capital gain. Now they put a cap on the, the new tax provisions, tax proposal actually put a, a cap of 1 million. Um, now that 1 million, they're very murky on um, yeah. that cap because that cap applies to capital gain, which could be capital gain tax from either, you know, stock or maybe, you know, real estate. Right. So it's a little murky. Now, for many of you, you know, who uh, are, are concerned um, because we live in California, the capital gain uh, tax, if you look at, you know, how many, um, how many sellers actually sell their properties uh, with a capital gain tax, uh, with a capital gain of 1 million, 
now it's not a small, it's not a very big number, but still about 8% or so right. in California. But if you break it down by, uh, by region, Bay Area, actually 20, near, nearly 20%. Right. <laughs> of one the out of five. Exactly. Yeah. One out of five. That's a lot of sales that could be affected. Um, and you know, going back to, so that's the demand side. But if you look at the supply side, again, going back to what I said earlier, right. every time there is a capital gain uh, uh, tax provisions, uh, people are going to decide not to sell their property. That actually could affect another 5 or 10% of supply and that would actually push up home prices as well right um now the home price uh, that we're looking at is not a significant gain maybe one or two percent but nevertheless you know with a the level of uh, affordability that we have now you know when we have yeah. a, a push up in home prices because of tax you know that hurts the um, affordability as well as price yeah i mean anything that that hurts us from a supply standpoint is something that california really can't afford it at this particular uh, point in time. But then they also did, you know, the, the kind of provisions that affect not just when you sell a property, um, but when your heirs then inherit that property, right? So say you keep it 1031 exchanging, uh, then you've built up a nice portfolio of properties. Typically, when your heirs inherit that, there's provisions for at least for residential real estate, right, that allows you to um, kind of basically revalue that that portfolio at the time of the inheritance so that your your heirs don't get slapped with a bunch of tax and they're trying to change that as well. Yeah, that is the, uh, you know, they, 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 they refer to the capital gain tax at death, but also um, what plays a role in a capital gains tax at death is also the step up in basis. Uh, many of you probably have heard about the step up in basis. Just to put it in a few words, the step up in basis is basically the rule that enables families to pass the property down from one generation to the next without actually paying any tax on increasing the property value. Because the property value, when someone passed away, at that time actually get reassessed. And the reassessment, the increase in the reassessment, uh, typically don't get uh, 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 a capital gain tax put on it. But they, right. they wanted to change it. You know, they want to change it. And with the uh, Biden's tax proposal, um, instead of getting rid of, completely getting rid of the step up in basis. Um, now, again, the, the, the language is a little murky. Um, yeah. They actually put a cap on um, the capital gain tax at death. Now, does that mean that all oh, the one million dollar cap is going straight to the step up in basis, or actually, you know, some of it would go to step up in basis? I think they have to clarify it a little bit. Right. We, so we don't know exactly whether they're just going to tax it everything over a million when you die, or whether your heirs are going to inherit your twenty million dollars worth of property and they. Um, you know, get a, a break on the first million and then have a capital gains on the other 19. We just, you know, they're still trying to to figure that out. But what are the implications for us in, in real estate, right? Because there's a kind of market aspect to this that we got to consider. Right. So let's assume that, you know, it's all straight going to uh, the, the 1 million cap. It's going straight to the, uh, the step up basis. How much are we looking at? Well, we're looking at about, you know, for the... Um, for those inherited um, real estate properties, which means we look at probate properties and things like that, you know, about 10% of them actually have a capital gain of 1 million. 
that's not a small number. Uh, that's not a big number. It's actually very small. So, you know, it, when you look at it from that perspective, maybe it won't affect it by a lot. But at the same time, you can't just look at it from that standpoint because look at it from, from a standpoint of people holding a property. Um, you never know when you're going right. to pass your property on to your, your heir, right? So yeah. every single property probably, you know, have some capital gain and they will be passed on eventually. So that affects people's mindset because- right. You know, if the capital gain continue to grow, people will be thinking, well, you know, I, if they, they look, they, if they look at that 1 million uh, threshold, they might think, well, I better, you know, sell it now before it get past that 1 million threshold. Right. So on the plus side, maybe it will increase turnover rate. Right. There's not going to be a reason to keep holding on to it forever and passing stuff down just to kind of maintain a tax. Uh, benefit because you're not going to have the tax benefit either way. So you might see more people dump those properties near end of life or something like that. Or Right, right. So that's you know, on the plus side. But on the negative side, it is possible that people may look at it from the standpoint of, okay, well, you know, um, we used to have uh, before the tax proposal, we used to uh, cap, uh, real estate uh, used to be a little bit more, uh, have a little Favorite. bit more tax advantage because yeah. of that step up basis. Now you, you don't know, get a step up basis when you inherit your dad's Apple stock. Is that right? <laughs> that's true. So that's why you know it might have actually uh, uh, lowered the desirability of a real estate property as an investment uh, 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 option. So that's another thing that we have to look at. You know, when things get uh, set in stone, and we'll have to go into it and do some more analysis. Yeah, and I mean, I for me, that's the kind of common thread between this one and the last tax reform, unfortunately, even though coming out of very different uh, administrations, is that that kind of uh, favored status where we all kind of had a social contract where we um, agreed that, you know, home ownership and owning your own property was, you know, in everyone's best interest, your interests and the best interests of the country, and oh. kind of uh, prefer, you know, preferred that kind of or incentivized folks to make those choices. Now we're just saying you can do that if you want to, and we're not going to try and give you that kick in the pants that you need. <laughs> well, with that said, I think we, well, I mean, of course, there are a lot of tax proposals uh, involved with the, um, the, the, the provisions that uh, Biden put out, but uh, we won't be able to cover everything and we will cover more, you know, when we have more detail. Yeah. Uh, but with that said, I think, uh, that uh, wraps up, you know, the the uh, podcast that we want, the, the, the topics that we want to talk about. Is there anything that we're missing, Jordan? No, I just want to congratulate you and thank you so much for that insightful analysis. Oscar has like a whole 50 page uh, set of slides on this. So if you want more details or whatever, let us know and we can kind of um, tell you what we have. But we'll definitely as things become less opaque through the wrangling that's still yet to be done in Washington, D.C. We will just continue to update these figures and our estimates of what we Absolutely. think is coming down the pike in addition to keeping our fingers on the pulse of anything else uh, that might happen. So great job, Oscar. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you all for, for joining us. I don't know what episode we're on now, but I think we're in the, the 80s. Yeah, 83. 83. So, wow. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's been a pleasure and it's been a lot of fun. So we'll leave it there and uh, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.